0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. This week, we're revisiting one of our favorite episodes, featuring a conversation with the filmmakers of the documentary Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. Jim LeBrecht and Nicole Nunam use archival footage and interviews to tell the story of a summer camp that seeded a disability rights movement, a movement whose history few know well, even though almost 50% of Americans live with at least one disability. The film was just nominated for an Oscar in the category of Best Documentary Feature. So sit back, relax, listen to the podcast, and go watch the film if you haven't already. Jim, Nicole, welcome to At Liberty.
1: Thank you. Hi.
0: Crip Camp tells the story of a very special summer camp named Camp Janed. It's a summer camp that was for disabled teens where, Jim, you were actually a camper. I wonder if you could give us some context about why Camp Janed was so special and also what life was like for teenagers with disabilities in the 70s, sort of writ large, what that background was.
2: Well, those two questions are absolutely very much intertwined. I think that I was 15 during the time that we're at the camp in the film. This is before there were curb cuts. This is before there was any kind of handicapped parking. This is before any kind of protections for civil rights. And in fact, for myself, I was very, very lucky that I was in public school. I was an experiment in my school district from the middle of first grade. And really, at any point, someone could have said, this isn't worth it, and I would have been kicked out of public school. With that hanging over my head, plus the fact that a number of the schools I went to were not wheelchair accessible. So I was literally climbing up and down stairs. I remember going to the library with my classmates, and they would carry my chair up for me. You know, fortunately, I was very kind of agile and on my arm, so I could handle this. So... Given that, when you go to summer camp, and especially Camp Chened, which really was a freewheeling kind of place, not that we were like all in danger of these wacky hippies who are our counselors, but that other camps I had gone to and a lot of other people had gone to were very kind of rigid and really kind of infantilized us. You know, we had to go to bed by 8 or 8.30. And when I heard about Camp Chened, I hear. You know, yeah, you sleep in a bunk with the counselors, there's music playing all the time, and, you know, we stay up late. And there was talk that maybe, I don't know, you could imbibe in some illegal substances with your counselors. And I will say that wasn't very, very rampant at the camp, but the time of the early 70s was a time where all of us uh, of our age were looking at tearing apart the status quo. And you had Black Power, and you had so many other movements going on. And people like Judy Human, who you meet in the film, really raised our awareness that we should be part of, we need civil rights. We need our own civil rights. We need to be able to get on buses and trains. Couldn't do that. So for me, being at that camp, not only was it freedom, and the kind of freedom that any 15-year-old would love to have, at any summer camp, but that it was an awakening of being around other people with disabilities. A lot of the counselors had disabilities. And that I was seeing people who had lives, who were doing things, who were going to college, who had families. And it really sparked something within me.
0: And did you know while you were there that it was a story to be told, that there was a story to be told? I mean, obviously, there was a crew filming you and the other people at the camp for a period of time, and you made great use of that footage. But did you have a sense of that there was something special going on here?
2: I don't think at the age of 15 I did. Everything in your life is new, right? So you don't really quite know what is kind of special. I will say that the kind of person I am, I'm really into audio equipment and Anything that had the word Sony on it, I you know, let me touch it and play around with it, right? If it was a radio or a camera and such. And so when these people showed up at camp, I was really interested in what they were doing. There were a couple of people with a couple of portable video rigs, but we were hanging out. They came to our little drama camera club at camp, like one of the first days. And they wound up saying, let's do a tour of the camp. And they strapped the uh, tape deck to the handlebars of my wheelchair, handed me the camera, and somebody pushed me around camp so I could kind of show people. But, you know, no sense of that this place was important or anything else. But in reality, you know, uh, as, as, as Nicole pointed out to me, Jim, you've been making this film for almost 50 years now.
0: And Nicole, um, for you, how did you meet Jim? How did you get involved with this film? You're an award-winning documentary filmmaker already. You have a lot of films under your belt. How did this one come about?
1: Well, um, Jim has been the sound mixer and sound designer that I've chosen on my three previous documentaries. And we both live in the East Bay in California. And we, you know, over the course of many years of working together and within a kind of small documentary filmmaking community, we became friends. And Over the years, Jim started talking to me when I would come in to work on another project with him about his increasing frustration about the lack of representation of stories around disability or people with disabilities in the media, and also about the lack of access for filmmakers with disabilities within our industry. I had never thought, first of all, about disability as being an important part of diversity. I really didn't know there was a disability community and culture the way that there is. All of these things were very powerful ways that talking with Jim shifted my own perception of the world and the way that I came to see disability as being such an important part of it. And so when he eventually came to me and said, listen, I think you're a great filmmaker and here's a few ideas I have around films with disabilities I'd like to see, maybe you'd like to direct one. I was really interested to talk to him, but it was sort of an off- handed comment that he made at the end of a meeting like that where he said but you know what I've really always wanted to see is a film about my summer camp but I don't know and I said wait what you know (laughs) tell me about that camp and so he starts telling me about Camp Jeanette and the stories he started telling me just the pictures he was painting in my head were images that I thought oh that's something that could really shift the way people see things that could really help people kind of to in an enjoyable and entertaining way come to see the world a little bit more like the way Jim has made me see it. And of course, it was the tip of the iceberg for me in terms of my own knowledge and awareness, but I just thought it sounded so fun. And then I was already sort of hooked, but then he said, you know, I have this theory that there was something about the camp that sparked the movement that came later. And a lot of my films have been about history and about social justice, and so the idea of tying those two things together, being able to shift the way people see the world and then take them on a ride through one of the greatest civil rights stories of American history that too many people don't know was very enticing. But the more I reflected on it, I realized what was really unique and special was the opportunity to tell that story from Jim's point of view and from the inside out. So eventually I said to Jim about a couple of weeks after we started talking about it, I said, you know, I really do want to do this, but I would like you to co-direct it with me. And uh, that started the partnership.
0: That's amazing.
1: Over the course of making the film,
0: do you feel like what you understood about people with disabilities changed or evolved?
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) Hugely. I mean, a lot of moments in the film are carefully constructed to make the non-disabled viewer confront their own bias. And I would say that I was doing that throughout the process of making the film. Things like that scene that is so moving in the film where Nancy Rosenblum, one of the campers, is trying to speak and she has a very severe speech impediment and everyone gives her so much space and time to get her words out and people listen to her, you know, so gracefully. And I, like the audience, when I saw that, I thought... Oh, my God, why don't we give people a chance to talk? Why don't we assume that everyone has something worth saying? You know, it was a very moving, life-altering experience for me all the way around and, and a gift, really a gift to kind of become a part of the community that Jim has been lucky to be a part of in Berkeley and to have my worldview expanded in the way that I hope, I hope the film does a little bit for other people. A
0: lot of the times, stories about disability are cast as being very niche, and this is an issue that comes up in documentary filmmaking with other issues, too. But you had some pretty big support on your side, most notably the Obama's production company, Higher Ground, signed on to executive produce the film was the film hard to sell when you were in the pitch phase? Um, sometimes when there's a lack of representation of any specific group of people, there is all this pressure for work to perform well. And it's the film is done really well, but before you knew that it was going to do well, did you feel an extra pressure for it to do well? Because it was sort of like maybe a litmus test for films about disability rights. I imagine that... Maybe those behind Black Panther or Crazy Rich Asians might have felt a similar pressure. And I'm curious whether or not you felt that pressure. Nicole, I'll, I'll start with you.
1: I mean, yes, very much so. And, you know, when we first started talking about the film to people, we really did meet resistance. And the first time we showed people that scene of the kids around the table people were like, I don't think an audience is going to be able to sit through that. And we just became very determined that if we do this the right way, we bring people along for the journey. They understand how fun and amazing and liberating and cool the community and the camp is, and then they're going to be along for that ride, and they're going to be able to be open to it. But it was hard until we got the footage and we started cutting things together, and we kind of created the language of the film, and we had this amazing trailer That's what started attracting interest. And then it kind of became like, well, yeah, this is a no-brainer. Of course we want this film. It's gonna be really important. And high-profile people started to get involved and the pressure really ramped up. And then I think we started to feel an enormous amount of pressure because we could really feel that the community was watching this. And it's not just a film about disability, it's a film about the community's story, you know? Um, Our impact producer, Andrea Levant, said this is our freedom story. So you don't wanna get that wrong. And on the other hand, disability is so diverse and there's so many different perspectives and so many points of view. And we were intentionally choosing to tell you know, this big sweeping history from the perspective of a handful of a motley crew of friends from a ramshackle summer camp. So, and those people don't represent all disabilities or all the diversity or all the perspectives that people are coming from.
2: I, initially, I felt like I had a target on my back, just knowing that really that we are really telling some history and that, you know, just that I am the person with the disability. Part of this also is showing cuts to people within the disabled community. We got valuable feedback from doing a special screening.
0: And to an earlier point, Jimmy, you had this inkling that there was a connection between Camp Ed and what would later come the ADA passing. Can you describe, can you walk us through that connection a little bit? How what started at Camp Ed became a seeding ground for what would eventually become a disability rights movement?
2: Well, one of the first things I said to Nicole is that, look, there was this exodus of people from New York out to Berkeley. Why do these people do this? What was involved with that? And then I said, that alone is really, you know, really kind of meaty subject, and as you start peeling back the onion here, well, it's because Judy Heumann had moved out to Berkeley, and we all knew her from camp, and she kind of let us know, you know, there is an incredible community in Berkeley, and you don't have to deal with the snow of New York, and it's relatively flat, and... There are support services here where we can help you find a place to live and personal care attendance and such so the disability rights movement and the independent living movement are kind of you know intermeshed with each other who is Judy human Judy human is probably one of the better known leaders of the disability rights movement and really from a very very early age she uh, has been a, a leader she was one of the founders of Disabled in Action in New York. She's one of the leaders of the protest in San Francisco, the 504 sit-in, and has really been recognized for her more than 50 years of work nationally and internationally uh, when it comes to the rights of people with disabilities. One of the first things that, as we see in the film, that was really a very important issue for people in disability rights was getting people out of institutions. And so it's not a far leap to say, gee, if you're living in a home like Denise Jacobson was in New York and she couldn't get out of her house herself, that enabling people to live independently was a huge goal of all of us. So. That was the inkling. And in reality, you know, there were certain other parts of the country that were getting politically active. But Berkeley was like, it was like the capital of disability uh, activism at the time.
0: And that sort of movement to be able to live independently, have some privacy, have job opportunities, how did that ultimately lead to the 504 sit-ins and then the ADA passing?
2: So the fact of the matter is that The Disability Act had been signed, but these regulations had not been uh, issued. And the Rehab Act basically said, you know, if, and what we were fighting for was that if you received any federal money, that you had to be accessible to people with uh, disabilities. You could not discriminate. And after a number of years of this just not being taken up by administrations, Jimmy Carter ran on the fact that he was going to you know, get these regulations issued. And he didn't jump on it. And an incredibly well-organized group of disabled people basically said, you've got like two months, two, three months to get this done. Otherwise, there's going to be nationwide demonstrations. This is before the internet. This is, you know, everybody's doing this by phone calls, let alone being able to get places without accessible transportation,
0: I also wanted to ask, you know, our producer, Kendall, you you met her earlier, identifies as disabled. And she said watching the documentary was a revelation for her, that Helen Keller was her only example of someone growing up with disabilities to look up to. And I wonder if either of you thought about how the film was being received or would be received by the young Jim Lebrex.
1: Yeah, we did. I mean, we did, you know, I mean, partially because that, I mean, I think that was one of the first things you said to me, Jim. An academic in England that Judy connected us to said, if you don't know your history, how can you have a future, you know? And it was so deeply disturbing actually to me, the more I got to know the history, to see the extent to which it's been neglected and forgotten. And we had a very powerful moment at Sundance where the audience was overwhelmingly saying to Judy in this theater, why didn't we know this story? Why didn't we know this story? And she said, you're a bunch of media people. And you're all well-educated, and why don't you ask yourselves that question? You know, I think maybe you just didn't want to see it. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I feel you know, very glad about is just to see this history brought a little bit more into kind of mainstream consciousness where it can reach people who really need to hear it, which is really everybody. But we found archive that had been kind of, you know, shoved in boxes that libraries had never bothered to itemize or catalog. So it took us like a year and a half to get the access to even be able to look at it or film reels that hadn't been printed. And, I think that kind of is like a metaphor, really, for sort of how philanthropy and academia and society in general has sort of sidelined disability culture and history. And um, you can see that strides are being made, but there's still a long way to go. And I think it's going to take a lot more films and a lot more work than just Crip Camp to give this history its rightful place so that all young kids will grow up knowing these stories and all of them can be inspired by them and see their futures in them.
0: You know, you had a lot of history to include in a fairly short film. And amidst sort of drawing those lines from point to point along the disability rights movement, you also gave a fair amount of space to teenage sexuality. There are scenes at the camp talking about crabs and, like, the amazing makeout sessions that were going on in the dining hall. Why did you make that decision to give that some room in the film?
2: I want to just point out, I think it was only me and Nancy we were making out in the dining hall, but everybody
0: like, was talking about crabs.
2: Yeah, right. But so, but there wasn't like orgies right after. Band-Gates. That is true. That is true. So, <laughs>
1: but there literally was a party called the Roman orgy, which got canceled because of the crabs epidemic. So you know, <laughs> I saw pictures. The Roman of the orgy costumes. was kind
2: of like everybody dressed. Yeah, everybody dressed up. You know, like in bed sheets, and you know, we had these wonderful kind of things that. Somebody was the king, and anyway, it was a. We played a lot. It was really a blast. But to answer your question, how do we perceive people with disabilities? We don't perceive them as being sexual beings. That we are asexual, or that we are not interested, or that we are incapable, or that we're not looked upon as being desirable. And in reality yeah well, first off, where do we get that message? and we could talk about media representation until the cows come home. But this is so far from the truth. And that myself, as we talk about in the in the film and Neil and Denise talked about it, I mean, my God, you know, we all have desires for love and affection and sex and adventure in our lives. And just because you have a disability, doesn't mean that that's out the window. If anything, it's liberation. Neil Jacobson kind of talked about being able to really get a sense that there were wonderful things about his body. For me, as somebody who's a wheelchair user, I remember having to deal with this when I was younger, when I was dating, that I was really aware of this thing that people weren't even thinking about me as somebody to date because they didn't think that I... was either capable or interested in sex.
0: And one interesting point that I was so glad you included in the film was that this also has huge medical uh, implications. I think it was Denise who talked about how her appendix was removed because she had a stomach ache and she had a venereal disease. And the doctor, by her counting, didn't even consider that she might have been sexually active and that could have been the cause of her symptoms. and. And so to me, this is about self-expression and also representation, but also about getting educated real fast because there are some very serious consequences to not being aware.
2: Look, the stories that people share around the horrors of, of medical care and how ableism is rampant. And you would think, you know, people go to medical school, they're used to dealing with people of all different types of situations, and it's just not the case. As somebody with a disability, if you find a doctor that actually wants to work with you, that understands that you know your body really well, and that they're open to you teaching them about your lived experience with your body, it's very rare. And basically, you latch onto that doctor and want them to live a very, very long life.
0: I want to turn—you've mentioned that it's the 30th anniversary of the ADA— The ADA, for all of its limitations, had a huge impact on, for one, making education more accessible, opening up employment opportunities. I'm wondering if you think this opening has had an impact on how people see disabled people.
2: Yes and no. I think that part of the law has kind of enabled more people to be out in society and having jobs and being able to go places and by virtue of just being out in the world and interacting with people, there's some real positives there. But I think that there's plenty of people that think the ADA is a bad law, that it's too expensive, that they don't see the reason why they have to make their place accessible, and that there's a certain amount of maybe even uh, kind of backlash against it. So, and as Denise Jacobson says at the end of our film, You can create a law, but unless society's attitudes change, it really doesn't amount to very, very much. So I think what's really fortunate for Nicole and I in our film is that we're starting conversations with this. If you see this film, hopefully you are questioning your preconceived notions and that you're watching it with friends or you're recommending it to people so that you can really talk about your feelings around disability.
0: Nicole, I'm wondering from all that you've learned in making this film, what is your sense of what comes after ADA? What is the next step? How do we give the ADA more teeth? How do we address some of its shortcomings?
1: Well, there are so many things that still need to change. And then there's the constant, constant work required to keep the gains that were won from slipping away. We show that in the film, I mean, even just the sort of trying to keep the 504 alive is a constant battle and was all the way up to the ADA. We faced many, many obstacles just in the activity of trying to bring this film to life that could be addressed through policy. So for example, if we're taking a trip to London to go show the film in a film festival pre-pandemic, there's the bathrooms and the airplanes aren't accessible. That was something that was left out of the ADA. I mean, that's nuts. And also, like, people can't take their own wheelchairs on the planes with them, which would be technically completely possible to do, right? Just to bolt people's own wheelchairs down on the plane. But instead, they have to transfer to this aisle chair, which is very uncomfortable and undignified for many people. And they have to be carried back onto the plane, the wheelchairs are very very frequently damaged you know to the extent that when we brought people to sundance from the film for example we had to have a crew of wheelchair repair people on site to like fix people's chairs because they frequently get damaged during travel i think healthcare is probably one of the biggest you know the continuing fight for support so that people can live um, not in nursing homes, but get health care in the home. I mean, even just something as simple as Jim's own wheelchair repair costs aren't covered by his health care plan, which is a very good health care plan, you know? Um, so who's making those decisions? So it is a little bit overwhelming, actually, all the things that need to change. And I agree with Jim that I feel like what we've really been thinking about is just the intersection between kind of media and awareness, breaking down preconceived ideas through storytelling and activism, and legislation. Those three things all really need to happen. And there needs to be aggressive work on all those fronts together.
0: I'm curious, you said the word intersection, and it made me think of intersectionality. And I thought one of the most poignant moments in the film was during the 504 sit-in when... um, You know, it was a sit-in that lasted days and days. And one of the things that was needed to keep people there was food. And members of the Black Panther Party supplied food, dinner, and then breakfast in the morning. And I actually wanna play a clip where that's discussed. The Panthers would bring a hot meal for dinner and then they would leave food for breakfast and lunch. For nothing, no, no money, no nothing. I ended up, you know, after the meeting, I said to this guy, I said, I don't get it. You're the Black Panther Party and you don't have a ton of resources. You know, they had a food kitchen in Oakland. Why are you choosing to feed us? He said to me, you know, you are trying to make the world a better place and that's what we are about. We are about making the world a better place for everybody. So if you're going to go to the trouble to stay here and sleep on this floor, we're going to make sure you get fed. You know, that's how we survived. I'm curious how intersectionality, there are multiple movements happening during the civil rights movement, played a part into getting the ADA.
2: I think that, first off, just the support that everybody that was inside that building received was some really good outreach that was natural to what people like Judy Heumann and Kitty Cohen and other people were doing that organized the Bay Area uh, protest, and that we were showing up for other rallies. We were reaching out and trying to be supportive of other movements. And when our time came, people came and helped us. And I think that was, that was really, really, really key. And then we can see that in the film, how important that was. And look, this need for, first off, the intersectionality that we all talk about is just as important today and just as active today. There is a, you know, movement of Black Disabled Lives Matter also, and some people doing some really, really great work around this because many of the people that have been subjected to police violence are people with disabilities.
0: Yeah, and just to clarify, um, in many different forms, one of the most prevalent is the deaf and hard of hearing community. Is that what you're thinking of where usually instruction from the police can't be heard or understood and ways of sort of indicating that they are deaf or hard of hearing are not communicated and misunderstood by the police? And that can lead to shootings, mental health.
2: Yeah, not being able to comply, but mental health is a huge part of that. And the umbrella of our, our community is very, very wide. Mm -hmm. And so much of it is either people who are maybe autistic or, like you were mentioning, deaf.
0: Have you heard some people say that the disability rights movement is very white and very straight or very cis? Do you think that that is true? And do you think that that could affect the next steps for the disability rights movement?
2: Well, I mean, it is very, very true. And this is the reason that the the, uh, disability justice movement started. And disability justice is really about looking at disability through a non-white, non-straight lens. We have an incredible impact campaign, if I could say that uh, without sounding like I'm being boastful.
0: Please, I was gonna ask.
2: Well, our impact campaign, we brought on two people who were very much involved in that movement. Stacey Park Milburn and Andrea Levant and said, "Here, create this for us, and, and we have a budget. And here's your budget, and and really go." And it has been very rewarding to really see what has been developed that really brings out voices and issues that are really important to people of color.
1: I think one of the beautiful precepts of disability justice is that leadership of the most marginalized is going to create the most powerful activism. And we've really found that to be true. And so we have a uh, 16-week every Sunday virtual crip camp experience that's being led by um, young leaders, mostly of color, from the disability justice movement. And it's kind of movement capacity building and community strengthening and a kind of community experience. And this was all developed kind of very quickly and very brilliantly in the aftermath of the pandemic. You know, originally our own idea for the impact campaign was much more kind of traditional, you know, community screenings and this kind of thing. But Stacy and Andrea when everything shut down said oh this just gives us the opportunity to reach more people in a virtual environment and they knew exactly what to do and it's become i think an incredible example of how you can continue to build a movement in this environment and it's been interesting because we've gotten a couple of emails from folks who are white disabled people coming online and seeing that all the seminars are taught from the perspective pretty much all of them of people of color and saying is this a space that it's okay for me to be in, (laughs) you know? Hmm. And we're saying, yes, it's for everyone. It's just that traditionally often those teachings and perspectives haven't been centered. And it's been really powerful to see that. And working with the archival footage that we had access to, you know, the microphones in the news settings when actions were happening in the 70s, there were people of color there, but they weren't necessarily the people who the microphone was being passed to. So we had limited... Hmm ability to showcase that in some ways. One of our intentions was to sort of take what was powerful out of the history of the 70s, but bring it into this moment where there's so much opportunity now to center diverse voices and shift the leadership. And that's something I think that we feel really passionately around advocacy and media and policy is just trying to make sure that um, multiply marginalized people are at the table in a meaningful way.
0: And speaking of the next generation, July is Disability Pride Month, and a recent article in the Times, New York Times, calls today's young activists the ADA generation, that they sort of grew up after the ADA was passed and therefore feel entitled to certain rights. Do you think that that's right? And is there a difference between the generation of crip camp and today's young people who have been able to grow up in the wake of the ADA?
2: When we were at Sundance, this... uh family came up to me and said, you know, my kids are part of the 504 generation because they had so much support within their education that was a direct result of those regulations. What I really enjoy is that the current generation of activists are just like these people you see in our film from 1977 and 30 years ago. They're young, they're fighting, they're in incredibly motivated and are really out there making changes do you
0: have any words of wisdom for them
2: i almost feel like i don't have the right to give them wisdom because i really hold them in such high regard i think that one of the lessons you have you know steve hoffman says if you have kind of a i'm paraphrasing like a meek personality or not going to make it in this world. And Judy says, I want to see a feisty group of disabled people out there and that things aren't going to be handed to you. And our dear friend, Stacy, that we've been talking about, who is no longer with us, one of the things that she said was, no one's coming to help us. We have to help ourselves. And I think that a lot of us hold that in our hearts and that don't take no for an answer. And when someone says no, you say why, and you don't buy into it.
0: Jim and Nicole, thank you so much for this film, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, too.
2: It's, really, um, it's, been, really, it's been really great to be with you. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for listening. To support the ACLU's disability rights work, you can donate at www.aclu.org slash liberty. Until next week, stay strong.